quick disclaimer for our listeners. If by chance you haven't listened to the neuroscience of depression or the neuroscience of addiction, we recommend that you give those a listen just to have a bit more background information on what we're covering in this episode. However, we will, of course, do our best to summarize wherever it's possible. That and having a solid background can always be helpful. Society objectifies feminine bodies in a way that it honestly doesn't objectify men's bodies. And I will clarify, objectification means we think of the body as for another, not for ourselves. Because of that, women and feminine individuals are more likely to see their bodies as not having worth. Because the standard of beauty is almost always completely unobtainable. And by objectifying bodies, we have given them a value that is only met if they meet the standard. No other qualifications apply. And they exist to please others, not to please themselves. We're Lane and Sherris, two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. From alcoholic blackouts to phantom limbs, brain freezes, orgasms, and more, these bite-sized episodes cover all the human experiences that are fascinating to us. This is the mini Brain Blown Podcast. On the podcast, we are covering another disorder with outward symptoms, sort of like how they were mentioned in the neuroscience of addiction and the neuroscience of schizophrenia. The difference between these disorders with outward symptoms versus the ones that are more internal, like depression or maybe anxiety, is that it makes it seem like these people should be able to choose their behavior. But from what we've learned... Our drive to seek good feelings is very strong, and those sources of good feelings are not treated equally by any means. I love your point on when we see a certain behavior. This has actually been my struggle in the field of mental health for the number of people who call it behavioral health. I have a real issue with that because it makes it sound as though your behavior is more of a choice and you should just choose to change your behavior. Mm-hmm. I think the value of neuroscience to mental health is to show why that isn't so simple and easy if your brain is rewiring a different direction. As much as we all wish people could just make things better, that's not how illness works. Mm. We know this with all other illnesses. We need to recognize it with a lot of mental health. That is very true for this episode. So with that being said... This is the neuroscience of eating disorders. I feel like for this episode, when we normally introduce the prevalence of it, I'm wondering if my personal vision may be askewed to what our listeners know about eating disorders. Maybe it's because of the training that we went through and just the awareness of eating disorders. Sure. I feel like they could be pretty common, but maybe they're not. I would say far less than some of our other diagnoses have been. So I will preface actually on this one, like many others, is not something I specialized in as much, mm. partially because I just didn't have as many patients who are coming with this. The prevalence, according to the National Association of Anorexia, Nervosa, and Associated Disorders is 9% worldwide. So 28.8 million Americans, and that's encompassing all eating disorders. So less than 6% of people with an eating disorder are underweight. Mm. 
That being said, we have symptomology that can be more common with eating disorders, which may be why, especially with your awareness to look for it, seems more common, Mm -hmm. but an actual diagnosis is less common. Mm. However, it is the most deadly. It is second only to opiate overdose for the most deadly mental health condition. There is one death every 52 minutes. Wow. So about the time this episode is over, one person will die from an eating disorder. Dang, that's scary. And specifically, this has a comorbidity, so occurs at the same time Mm. as a lot of other mental health diagnoses. So in addition to that, 26% of people with eating disorders have tried to end their lives. Mm. And 30% have experienced some sexual abuse. Wow. So even though it's not as prevalent, it's very scary and something to take extremely seriously. Absolutely. Okay. Very good. When we look at the disorders from the lens of like a colloquial direction to when it's actually diagnosed, is there any difference there? I'm trying to think of Mm -hmm. a socially norm example of eating disorders or how we talk about eating disorders normally. I almost feel like we don't. We do. The difference here is unlike every other mental health diagnosis, this one is celebrated. Among society, we celebrate the results of this diagnosis in a way we don't with any other mental health diagnosis. Oh no, it's losing weight. Yes, it is. People with eating disorders will talk about one of the addictive things about this is the positive feedback that they get when they start experiencing the eating disorder because they get so much positive reinforcement of like, oh, you look so good. What are you doing? Oh, no. And society-wise, we reinforce the value of the outcomes of this severely. We celebrate this diagnosis colloquially. Wow. Holy smokes. And a side effect of that is 42% of first to third grade girls want to be thinner. 42%. 81% of 10-year-old children are afraid of being fat. 46% of 9 to 11-year-olds are sometimes, or very often, on diets. 35% to 57% of adolescent girls engage in crash dieting, fasting, self-induced vomiting, diet pills, and laxatives. And on a campus survey, 91% of college women admitted to controlling their weight through dieting. This is highly prevalent Because it is celebrated through society. So the risk to getting that diagnosis is extremely high. Yeah, it is a flame that is just constantly being fueled. Yes. And the spark starts literally in first grade. Yes, or earlier. Or earlier. That's terrifying. Yes. Looking at it... From the clinical perspective, when does it change from that? When does it change from the, whether it's a societal drive to it, what makes it diagnosable? And what makes this diagnosable is it has to get severe enough that we catch it, Hmm. which can be a problem. So clinically, when it comes to eating disorders, this is found in the DSM as feeding and eating disorders. That's the category. And that category encompasses PICA, which is eating non-substance food for one month, 
rumination disorder, which is regurgitating food, rechewing it, spitting it out. Avoidant or restrictive food intake, also called ARFID, which is a lack of interest or avoidance that causes weight loss or a deficiency that is not anorexia. So it's usually caused by something else, comorbid with autism, for example, a lot of the times, or comorbid mm. with food allergies, also possible trauma. Mm -hmm. Anorexia nervosa is restriction of energy intake, leading to significantly low weight, an intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, and or persistent behavior that interferes with weight gain, even though at a significant low weight. So there's a disturbance in how one thinks of one's body can be coded in a way to show this and bulimia can occur together. So you would code it as, as anorexia with an additional code for bulimia. Okay. So this is the major difference here between all of the previous statistics is, mm -hmm. honestly, you've reached a low weight. Okay. And, and or we've noticed that you have an intense fear causing clinically significant distress. I would say maybe a problem here is we drew the circle too small. Mm, yes. And we may want to relook at redrawing that circle gotcha bulimia nervosa is also in this category that's a recurrence of binge eating eating more in a specific amount of time that is larger than what most individuals would eat a sense of lack of control over eating reoccurring use of behaviors in order to prevent weight such as vomiting laxatives diuretics other medications etc binging at least once a week for three months and disturbance of how one thinks of one's body and then we also have binge eating disorder, which binge being the part of bulimia without the second half of bulimia. Mm -hmm. And of course, we always have that other category that insurance doesn't want to pay for, but it's more, we notice there's something problematic going on here and we're in a hospital and there's not enough time. Gotcha. So all categories have those. We will be focusing on this episode on the most common thought of diagnosis, which are bulimia and anorexia. Mm -hmm. And we're going to specifically focus on that because they're lumped together in research for this reason and because their behaviors make them the most deadliest, right. but also because they are the focus of how one experiences one's body, that the okay. rest of the diagnosis in this category really don't have. Yes, that makes sense. I will also say I do, and I maybe should have said this earlier, that prevalency number doesn't maybe feel as high as some of the other ones we've looked at, but to be transparent, this is straight from research. This predominantly only hits women. Yes. So if you cut the population in half, 9% of half of the population is significantly larger. If it affected men to the equal rate, we'd be looking at something more like 18%. Oh, that's huge. That's a great point. Wow. So not only are we realizing that the prevalence, though it's a small number, is actually much bigger than what we realized. And we're seeing how this disorder is fueled from even a young, young age the other thing that I can't stop thinking about, especially as we move into looking at the history or the background of this disorder, is that this is not new. No. This sort of societal influence on body shape has gone on for so, so long. Yeah. So I can only imagine that maybe maybe the diagnosable disorder hasn't been around as much, but the issue and the struggle has been there for a while. It's been there for as long as we tried to control women's bodies, to put it bluntly. Mm. According to Lauren Mullaheim, we have some records of this going back to 323 BC. Oh my gosh, BC again. Holy crap. Yep, to 32 BC and medieval times. 
slightly different in how the symptomology came about. There was a lot of reports of women starving to death in the pursuit of holiness. Mm. So deprivation of food was common enough that current authors look back on this period of time and have started to state that this was holy anorexia. Wow. This definitely has different motivations behind it, but there are lots of those who argue that it is the same diagnosis, but for a different reason. Mm. It is still the control over women's bodies. It still does with a lot of what we're going to talk about. It was just different reasons. Sure. Bulimia is more recent and was first described by Dr. Gerald Russell in 1979. Purging has been documented as happening as early as pharaoh times and other ancient cultures, but was believed to come from trying to prevent an illness or was even prescribed. So that one's Mm -hmm. difficult to really look at. The earliest case appears to be 1903, but we didn't really know it at that time. Gotcha. Eating disorders have been in the DSM since its inception, but were originally labeled under psychophysiological gastrointestinal reactions, which included ulcers, gastritis, and colitis. And we didn't believe the emotional factor was as important. Wait, why does that feel important? What does that mean that we believed the emotional factor was not as important? It goes to exactly what you were speaking to. We were only looking at the behavior. Wow. So that's all we saw. We didn't look at why this was occurring at all. Of course. My goodness. I mean, that being said, we likely would have treated it a little bit more like something that was less controllable because we were treating it, it sounds to me, more like a medical diagnosis Mm. that happened to be in the DSM. But we were only looking at the what and not the why. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that looking at neuroscience helps us to know a little bit more of the why? Without question. Lovely. And you know what, folks? That's why we're looking at neuroscience! (laughs) (laughs) I love it. No, but honestly, like, in in all seriousness, we understand that this is an, an outward symptom disorder. We're seeing people doing things and think... Just don't do them. Just stop doing it. Yes. Why are we looking at this through neuroscience? Maybe instead of asking why, since we've kind of gotten a theme over this season, what's the importance of looking at this disorder through the lens of neuroscience? Honestly, as you mentioned, like a lot of our other diagnosis, mental health is where we started. We're not getting the results we want We're not able to get the results we want without knowing more about what's going on. We need to not only draw circles around things and label them as not normal, but if we want to fix an actual diagnosis, it needs to be what we cited in the last episode, The Neuroscience of Schizophrenia, from Strick, Stragmeier, Walter, and Dierks. If we want to do this, we need mental health diagnoses to be reliable, combine valid information about not only what is occurring, but why it's occurring so we can come up with better treatment and prognosis. Why neuroscience? Because once again, I'm sorry, mental health is really failing in this diagnosis. It's costing people their lives every 50-something minutes, and we need more information so we can do a lot better. Absolutely. Again, soapbox early. (laughs) We're here for it. And you know what? We'll take a quick break to process. If you happen to catch the neuroscience of addiction that we did back in July, 
the scientists who did the research that we have just discovered on this podcast showed us some really cool information about this whole desire of our need to pursue pleasure Mm -hmm. and feel good. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine that this is yet another driving factor for this disorder, especially considering we've already mentioned the societal praise that comes from it. Yes. But I'm curious to know, is that drive for pleasure or for feeling good going to be influenced in the brain and how what's going on there? Yes. And there's also the influence that we saw from the neuroscience of depression and anxiety where we've got the negative coming in. Oh, we're going to have both. Yes. Wow. Holy smokes. Okay. Let's talk about it. So what's going on in the brain is... Kaya et al. researched patients with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa and noticed they share a dysregulation in the anterior ventral stradial pathway. So that combined with your amygdala and your hippocampus make up the mesolimbic dopamine pathways that we discussed a lot in the neuroscience of addiction. Gotcha. It's where the good things are coming in. It's where your regulated behaviors really come in. Oh, okay. And this can cause a vulnerability for a dysregulation in appetite behaviors Mm. because it's regulating behaviors at all. Right. There's a high level of self-control with individuals with anorexia nervosa produced by an exaggerated dorsal cognitive circuit functioning. That's part of your DLPFC that we discussed a lot in depression, anxiety throughout this season. Mm -hmm. That allows them to inhibit their appetite This does not happen with bulimia nervosa patients based on their limited ability to control their impulses. Wow. So they're essentially getting opposite sides of this regulating spectrum, I'll call it. Hypo or hyper. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. According to Johnson, quote, an image schema is a recurring pattern of our perception interactions and motor programs that gives coherence and structure to our experiences. Image schemas have been suggested as playing critical developmental roles, forming the basis of early cognitive development and possibly extending all sensory motor perception modalities. What did I mean by image schema? Because that's where that quote started, right? Sure. Image schema is not something we've really talked about before. And to really understand the neuroscience of eating disorders, we have to understand our neurological way of making sense of the body. Mm, Okay. And the body and how it functions or the body and how we see our body? Yes. And the fact that those don't always match. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Okay, what the heck is that all about? So Riva states, humans from birth can recognize things, right? Mm -hmm. And we perceive incoming data and we map spatial structures and try to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Like one of my dad's favorite moments in life was to see a baby discover their toes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It's sort of like, oh, wow, I can see them. I can feel them. I can see them move. I put them in my mouth. Yeah. And it's (laughs) all of these body understandings starting to coalesce. Oh, yeah. We try to understand physical objects of any kind by noticing how they move through space, by watching how they move, and by understanding that some things can contain other things. If I put my fingers in my mouth, they disappear. This is thought of by Madler to be a process of the dorsal visual strain. That will be a little bit discussed in our upcoming episode. Oh yeah, in our upcoming mini episode. Exactly. As infants can start to move in their environment, they start to understand how they are also a thing that has a trajectory and interacts with other things. 
and our brains get information about our body and space through this ventral visual stream and the medial temporal lobe. Okay. Scientists are starting to come to the same conclusion, multiple scientists, that we make sense of things more than once. To generalize, we make sense of things actually a lot of times, but we, to categorize them generally, we make sense through a schematic or allocentric perspective, objects independent of our body, and once through a perceptional egocentric perspective, locations of the object related to the body. Sure. Absolutely. We need the egocentric to grasp things and reach for them, and the allocentric to understand their size, shape, and orientation. I can or cannot pick that up. Yeah, gotcha. Riva states, quote, In sum, as suggested by image schema, recalling an episodic memory using language involves the recovery of its spatial context. So I kind of have an understanding of that. I have to use memory to remember, like, I tried to pick that up and I couldn't pick that up. And this is how it moves through space. Gotcha. So we have multiple mental representations of the body. The location of the body parts, sensory information, movement in the body of space, body self-awareness, body representation, public representation, and body image. And this is how we make sense of our body moving through the world. Oh, and now I'm starting to tie that into that makes sense for eating disorders. Because at first I was like, wait, where does spatial awareness come into play of that? But if your brain is confused and there are so many different ways that we perceive our body, but the only one that you are paying any attention to is what society is telling you to look at. It's actually worse than that. (gasps) How? Because it doesn't always get updated and they don't always align. Oh, goodness. Mm -hmm. Okay, the updated part is scary. What is this alignment part about? Let me explain a little bit more background on this. Yeah, please. One of the reasons this is important is because these different understandings of the body, location, sensory, movement, awareness, representation, and body image are located in different areas of the brain. Sure. Yeah, as they always are. Mm -hmm. It's never simple. It's never one place. (laughs) Nope. It's always a lot of your brain. (laughs) And it's singing in harmony. Or not. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. Specifically, your posterior parietal cortex, that is the top back of your brain. Okay. Is part of it. Your amygdala, of course. Best friends. In your midbrain. (laughs) Not best friends in this case. Amygdala is just being a temper tantrum yourself. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Okay. Your insula, also midbrain. Okay. Your fusiform, that is the bottom of the brain under the occipital and temporal lobe. If you remember right, fusiform is how we have face blindness or don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Occipital, back of the brain, vision. Yep. And posterior superior temporal succulus to help with audio and visual stimuli. Wow. Rossetti et al. states that there are types of interactions between these representations that can be reproduced, specifically stating that body schema and body image should be tightly linked. So why does this all matter, which is what you were looking for? Right. Our experience of the body is linked with self-consciousness, and it is layered, six layers to be exact. We do not experience them separately, but there's communication between them, and one experience informs the other, or is supposed to. Whoa. Sure, it's kind of like how we update the information that we know. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Or we don't, which is the problem. Oh, boy. And what happens is we live in a society... I'm going to be blunt. That is fat phobic. That's well documented. And prioritizes bodies of a specific size. And that is communicated to all of us all the time, all around us, causing some of this interaction between our understanding of ourselves to judge, do they meet society standards or not? Mm. More commonly, but not always, women identified individuals or feminine individuals are taught to 
adopt the objectified view of their bodies that society always does. Society objectifies feminine bodies in a way that it honestly doesn't objectify men's bodies. Right. That's a specific difference. And I will clarify, objectification means we think of the body as for another, not for ourselves. We don't do that in the same way with men's bodies. Not that we don't think men's bodies are sexy. Yes. But we don't think of them as being for something else, unbelonging to themselves. Right. For the use of others. That's the difference. Because of that, women and feminine individuals are more likely to see their bodies as not having worth because the standard of beauty is almost always completely unobtainable. And by objectifying bodies, we have given them a value that is only met if they meet the standard. No other qualifications apply. Wow. And they exist to please others, not to please themselves. Oh my God. So your body doesn't match up. It doesn't matter what else you bring to the table. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are or how much caringness you have or how much you provide for your family. Your body doesn't match up and that is the only thing that matters because your body is not your own. I'm sitting here so in shock and scared and realizing just the truth of that. I completely understand and I think it's so interesting that of course men don't have this understanding most of the time at all actually just two weeks ago a friend was telling me that her brother called her to say he'd listened to a song called victoria's secret i don't know if you've heard it yeah i have and it talks about how victoria's secret is that men make victoria's secret right Uh women's bodies don't exist for women they exist for men right yeah and he called his sister to be like i did not realize how hard this was And this terrifies me because I have a daughter who's a toddler. Yes. It was his first moment of insight. Wow. Yeah. And she she was like, yeah, no kidding. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is life. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's a base level of understanding this, right? That's a second of understanding what all is potentially occurring because, again, it, your body is not your own and your body has to be perfect or nothing else matters. Seriously. And how that strict of rules would influence how your brain takes in that information. Yes. And saves it for later or doesn't. Yes. Makes so much sense. Yes. Specifically saves it for later and doesn't matter what your body looks like, that's what doesn't update. Yeah. So this influences the brain to adopt an observer's perspective on their body. They look at themselves as an object that only has value in its physical appearance, which impacts self-objection. Riva states, quote, self-objectification is typically manifested as persistent body surveillance or habit monitoring of the body's outward appearance theorized to lead to a number of negative experiential consequences, such as body shame, social physique anxiety, lack of awareness of internal body states, and decreased peak motivation state slash flow experiences, and argues that individuals with eating disorders get stuck on one body experience. That's what doesn't update. We focus on just one. Conway suggests that we essentially get stuck on one body perspective, and when our memory tries to recall it, it usually gets compared to help identify what is actual, right? Mm -hmm. Ideal, possible, current self matches it, and those experiences can crossfire. This happens a bit like it does with depression. We get stuck on the negative and we can't update the positive. Oh, the rumination. Exactly. Specifically, our recall of episodic memories of similar experience, right? Mm-hmm. Covered those in 
a lot of things. Yeah. Episodic memories are a different type of memories than somatic, right? Yes. So our recall of those episodic memories of similar experience feeds into an implicit memories rather than an explicit view of self. Whoa. Would you simplify that real quickly? I want to make sure I got that. So what is the difference between an implicit view of self or an explicit view of self? We'll get into this a lot more with trauma, but implicit and explicit memories are different the way that episodic and somatic memories are. Yes. When you learned to drive, your body was super awkward, right? Because you were consistently having to think where your hands go, where your feet go, where your eyes go. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, it changes. Right. And you don't think about it. You just do it. That's one memory becoming another. So implicit memories are unconscious or automatic memories. Explicit memories are more conscious. Gotcha. So re- the recalling of these body images that haven't been updated is unconscious. Yep. It's like you're trying to fight the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Wow. To finish that quote from Riva, our emotions impact the recall of reality because of how it's translated. So people with eating disorders get locked in a version of the body, the objectified body, and it's not getting any updates from perception. Right. From what we see, this happens because of structural vulnerabilities involved in this encoding experience, specifically in the precunus, that's the prefrontal cortex near the back of your head, helps with recall of memory and integration of information, specifically about the environment. And our inferior parietal lobe, that's also your prefrontal cortex, slightly deeper, very same area, involved in spatial awareness. This damage is thought to be caused by extreme stress, chronic stress, or PTSD. Wow. So we are, just like depression, just like trauma, that fear that anxiety gets us stuck. Yeah. And you can't escape the rumination. Mm-hmm. And you're not getting the updated vision of what your body really is and what your body really does and really means mm-hmm. because you're stuck in that rumination and it's going deeper and deeper. Yes. If anybody's ever talked about or heard about eating disorders having this disrupted view of their body, mm-hmm. they will draw their body and it looks so different than how their body actually looks. That's why. That's why no matter how much weight they lose, it's not enough. Wow. That's terrifying. And just like in depression, that rumination causes damage to your hippocampus. Oh, your filing cabinet, it is not getting updated. Exactly. So it's atrophying and just like depression and anxiety, that damages your HPA access. So you don't have the memory recall the way that you should, which keeps you stuck there. Bernstein and Rubin state it's shame recall. We ruminate and that impacts memory call, allowing the brain to get stuck. So you take a person who feels like their body isn't meeting up, like it isn't good enough, which as we identified in the beginning, is most female-identifying people as young as three years old. You add extreme stress or trauma, and this can cause rumination, allowing for memory retrieval to weaken and not functioning properly, causing the belief of their body to never be updated. According to Riva, quote, if this experience due to rumination is repeated many times, we can experience two effects. First, the real-time experience of the body is switched off. We are out of our own body. Second, the real-time experience of the body is substituted by the context of the objectified body stored in long-term memory. We will never match up. Now remember that this is almost always happening in a brain that's not fully developed. Oh, no. It gets worse. It gets significantly worse. 
Gilberg et al. states that eating disorders should be considered neurodevelopmental disorders because they rewire it and the central nervous system. They're rewiring your brain and your central nervous system. Southgate, Chuchatera, and Treasure state, quote, a critical period of the brain development occurs in adolescence. The semantic pruning, right, that blooming and pruning that we talk about all the time, mm-hmm. and increased myelination, that myelination is how fast it can communicate, uh-huh. that takes place and is associated with significant function refinements of brain systems. Synaptic pruning removes redundant neural connections, super important, mm-hmm. maximizing the efficient circuitry of networks shaped by learning and experience. It In adolescence, right, that is when we are hitting a lot of neuroplasticity. Absolutely. My lineation speeds up the neural transmission, thus allowing for more rapid communication across regions of the brain. Our brain works better when it sings in harmony, which means it needs to communicate with itself. Yep, and it's trying to make stronger communications. Yes. You remove that myelination, you're in trouble because your brain is always going to sing out of harmony. These two developmental processes are considered to, quote, support the collaboration of widely distributed circuitry. When your brain doesn't cope with high stress or trauma, it disrupts this process that you need to develop properly. But with eating disorders, there's an additional impact of poor nutrition. Oh, no. In addition, poor nutrition, which we know nutrition impacts the brain without question. You need fat to, like, think. Yeah, it's fuel. It's huge. Right? Parts of your brain don't work without enough energy, without enough sleep, or without enough food. Let alone happening on a developmental brain. Oh, my goodness. And poor nutrition impacts proper hormonal change. Hang on. Where do hormones come into all of this? Hormones cause a lot of problems. Neurologically, they disrupt white matter and gray matter. They're decreasing them. And enlarging cerebral spinal fluid. Enlarging cerebral spinal fluid can cause a person with an eating disorder to read food cues as aversive or have lower level of activation to food cues. Oh, no. Specifically, according to Uher, we see, quote, activation in the lateral fusiform urus and inferior parietal body cortex to body image cues were less marked in people with eating disorders and aversion ratings collaborate positively with activation in the right medial apical prefrontal cortex. You're not getting the proper food cues because you've stopped eating. Oh, gosh. And you're in development, so it causes damage. And your brain is like, oh, we're not eating food. That means it's not good. That means we don't need it. So you have no ballooning and pruning, so you don't update as well. You have decrease in gray matter and white matter, which we've discussed in schizophrenia, causes major communication issues. You have decreased in myelination, which causes major communication issues. Your brain doesn't function properly. This is a developmental disorder. Holy crap. Because this is majorly impacting your development. Some things, when we look at how early they can happen and how much they can rewire the brain, we need to think about them like a developmental disorder because we essentially get stuck at a certain age. Yes. Additionally, we see impacts to the reward center of the brain with bulimia matching substance abuse stating an alteration in the brain reward circuits and anorexia to have a lower overall reward to both food and exercise, meaning anorexia brains don't get the rewards they need to feel positive or successful. We also see a similar response to the neural rewiring we see with gambling and other addictions where that brain gets stuck in that loop where Mm -hmm. it does not prioritize other things and impacts risky choices. 
something else we haven't actually touched on in a number of episodes is we like to look at the brain, but also sort of sit in the body mm-hmm. and look at how is the body internally affected, but how are we perceiving our body or Mm -hmm. just sort of imagining it for those who are experiencing it. Absolutely. And I can only imagine what they're feeling in their body is clearly huge. And I will state as sort of a disclaimer, I always think the body is important and I think it's so crucial that we talk about the interconnection between brain and body. Mm -hmm. We've just gone into some episodes that I neither have enough clinical experience on or enough personal experience that I'm sometimes hesitant to talk about this one. Sure. However, in this episode, the body is huge. It's everything. Yes. Specifically because the brain has rewired due to stress or trauma, etc. And that's caused rumination, which impacts our memories, which helps our brain get stuck the same way it does in depression. What makes this different is rumination is focused on the body. And that rumination can cause one version of the body to not get updated the way it's supposed to. It's stuck. Mm. So... In a sense, we're going to talk about this a lot in trauma as well, but we're floating heads when it comes to anorexia and bulimia. We aren't present in our body at all, mm-hmm. enough so that our actual body and our understanding of our body and our experience of our body are not lining up. Mm-hmm. Warning signs I also am sometimes hesitant to cover because this is literally the most deadly Disorder we'll talk about short of chemical dependency if it's very specifically around opiates. I wanted to discuss some of them because it's so important. Not that I'm an expert in any way, but because this is important enough that we should be talking about it more. We should be discussing those warning signs more. We should be doing more preventative work. So warning signs, to name a few, I would say are over-focus on the body, specifically early. Comments. Watch your comments when you're talking about, I'm getting too fat, or... I hate the way this part of my body looks or any of those specifically around small children because it normalizes this behavior, which is not a guarantee, but is not helping your child at all. Yeah. Spending a lot of time in the bathroom is often a warning sign for bulimia. Weird weight gain or weight loss that is not in line with development. Noticing a lot of avoiding food or noticing food disappearing to discuss both of the diagnosis. Gotcha. So abnormal behaviors around the body or around food are enough that I would say you may want to look deeper. Absolutely. Because it's better to do preventive than to wait too long and have damage done to brain development, hormonal development, or maturation. Absolutely. And before we dive into more takeaways like that, we'll take one more quick break. In our final section of this episode, looking at the takeaways, it feels like there are a number of societal things that we could share, but it feels equally as important to talk about the severity of this diagnosis Mm -hmm. and the fact that nothing's changed. And this is one, not that there is one of all that needs to be updated or fixed, but this is... A deadly, deadly disorder. And we need to do better. We need to specifically do better, not only as a society, but also as clinicians, because we need to learn how to treat this better. Because this is so difficult to treat, and we see so many people die from it instead. 
So what do we do about it? Somewhat starting at the beginning, we need to focus a lot more on attachment. Two in the neuroscience of relationships in season one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If we remember from that, attachment in those first three years of life specifically, maybe I would stretch that and say up to the first five years of life. Mm-hmm. We are not humans. We are part of the relationship. As we diagnose individuals, we shouldn't diagnose people who are under five as individuals. We actually diagnose them within the context of the relationship with the parents. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So this is literally the foundational building blocks of who we are. We have to look at attachment because we have to rethink of this as a neurodevelopmental disorder. So Southgate to Chancheria and Treasure state, quote, attachment behaviors within and outside the session need to be at the center of treatment. As we recall, this is literally the building blocks of how we make sense of life. So attachment impacts us far more than we ever want to realize admit or talk about Mm. it is fundamental and we need to think of eating disorder as a developmental disorder so this makes a ton of sense they link together they also state um, quote emotional functioning another aim of treatment is to maximize emotional intelligence so that the response of the environment is optimized in the case of anorexia and content of emotional coaching focusing on accepting and reflecting on the emotions rather than using displacement or avoidance a warm supportive, empathetic relationship is the bedrock of which emotional issues can be built. Obsessive compulsive personality traits, which include doubt, indecision, meticulousness, intolerance of uncertainty or perfectionism can interfere with the process of therapy in many ways. The role of therapy is to help people learn to have an approach to life that uses strengths in all suits rather than a skewed approach in which they only play their dominant hand. This is an easy thing to say and a harder thing to do because often attachment issues cause a lot of damage in trust and being able to create this type of relationship isn't easy and it's going to take a lot more effort and focus than previously thought. That being said, we know from the neuroscience of relationships that attachment issues are curable. Without question, thank you neuroplasticity, but they do require specific treatment to actually work. And we don't historically, from my experience, again, this is more limited because I didn't treat this as much. I was not trained in a way that said focus consistently on the attachment relationship first. Yeah. It's hard because when you're treating eating disorders, you're also trying to balance that with, I need to keep you alive. Right. And And in session, it's very hard for those to be competing. Right. Is that how it would be for an adult with eating disorders as well? We look to attachment first? Yes, 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 and yes. You can treat attachment at any time if you have the training and the tools. Mm. But you need to be able to use an evidence-based practice because this isn't easy work by any stretch of the imagination. Attachment is where I did a lot of work because I did a lot of work specializing in trauma and trauma and attachment are besties. They go hand in hand a lot of the time because honestly, that's where a lot of our first damage comes from. Sure. So... I have been trained in a lot of evidence-based modalities around attachment. This is crucial, it is hard, and you need the specialized training to be able to do it or it's not going to happen because you need to essentially go back and change building blocks. Yeah. Possible because trauma is also curable, right? Neuroplasticity is beautifully done that way. But the focus, remember, neuroplasticity is doable, not easy. Mm-hmm. So 
in treatment, we need to shift this. And from going to old school to going to new school, another possibility for treatment is virtual reality. Interesting. Mm -hmm. This is super cool for me to have come across this research because I have wished for the ability to write and get an NIH grant to study VR and mental health since like 5G came out. What? I've been talking about this for like almost four years. Riva states, quote, the convergence between technology and medicine is providing new tools and methods for behavioral health care. Again, that's that word. (laughs) Yes. Specifically citing what VR could do because it allows for the clinician to provide an IRL experience without the downside that current exposure treatments have. Because VR is living it, right, in real life. Yes. But it's a safe, controlled environment. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. This has so many cool implications. So patients could be emotionally present without being distracted. And it has the additional aspect of allowing for, quote, an advanced imaging system, an experiential form of imagery that is effective as reality in inducing emotional responses. This means we could use this for things like phantom limbs, for a lot of therapies about how we perceive our body to work through things like eating disorder, gender dysphoria, and more. VR and mental health could be amazing. Wow. As that a, sounds so cool. As a former play therapist and a former attachment therapist for trauma, no words for how cool this could be. Yeah, unbelievable. Because you could go into so many different places for like play therapy and yes, and experiencing, you can do so much in experiencing your body and exploring your body in ways that feel safe, comfortable, regulated. Yes. To quote Riva, in a VR experiment, Burgess and colleagues examine the neural systems involved in the retrieval of the spatial context of an event, the measured activation showing the buffering of the location of a scene elements in successfully translating frames of reference, allocentric, body-centric, head-centered, between the parahippocampus and the precunus. All of these data suggest that it may be possible to use VR to induce a controlled sensory rearrangement that facilitates an update of locked allocentric representations of the body. This could help shift the brain out of that stuck place that exists in eating disorders. Wow. Okay, we might have to dive into how in another episode. I think talking about technology and healthcare specifically on mental health could be a really cool episode. Oh yeah, we'll look into it. Additionally, to talk about medication, I would argue SSRIs. I didn't actually specifically find any research citing this exactly, but we know from the research of the neuroscience of depression, and we know from the research of eating disorders that there's a similar experience of rumination, and that rumination causes damage to the hippocampus, which keeps us stuck. We know from the neuroscience of depression that a real benefit to SSRIs, besides the increase of serotonin, helps decrease the damage to the hippocampus, which is vital in long-term recovery. Yes. So that one just makes sense to me? Yeah. Same. Additionally, to shift away from just treatment and talk about society, I would state that a long-term takeaway is changing the way we react to bodies. It needs to be a societal change. And I realize that's a big ask, but I think we are taking steps towards it. I have heard people about the damage of social media, and I absolutely agree that on a developing mind, we need to change the approach to this. We need to be more careful around it because social media is only increasing that objectification. Mm -hmm. I will also say I've seen a lot on social media that can also go the other way. 
that is critiquing and educating how we respond to feminine bodies and that we need to stop objectifying. I have seen a ton of education on reducing fat phobia and the social movement of working to decrease this, and it's had an impact. Social media helps connect social movements, and social movements have gone after this specifically medically. And one of the impacts that we've seen is finally, after decades of knowing how inaccurate, racist, and problematic the BMI is, we finally have the AMA taking action not to use it. It is huge. Never been accurate. It has always been a problem. And finally, it's changed. Yes. Thank goodness. Yes. That's because of that movement to say, stop being such a fat phobic doctor. Stop telling all of your overweight women's patients that the answer to all of their problems is to lose weight. Because that's causing massive health implications. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And start using science. Weird enough. Oh, yeah. You'd think they'd use science in that specialty. Concept. And a lot of the times we struggle with the use of science when it conflicts with our beliefs. We don't want it to be true. We want, don't want to acknowledge it's true because it's uncomfortable. Right. And that's where we need to change as a society. We need to see the harm that we are causing to others and make a difference specifically to young children. Mm. We also to help create a world that is better for young children and for feminine bodies, we need as a society to change what we see as beautiful. So as odd as it is, I will leave you with two of my favorite quotes from science fantasy author, Jim Hines. Quote, I've never met anyone who wasn't beautiful. People have simply forgotten how to see. And the more we narrow the definition of beauty, the more beauty we shut out of our lives. I challenge you with the reminder that neuroplasticity can absolutely 100% change the way we respond to things. If we do the work, add more beauty to your life. Appreciate bodies of all kinds and start challenging yourself on what is needed to be beautiful. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris with music by James Austin. To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to info at brainblownpodcast.com or reach out via social media to connect.